Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Best of Jack London. It's great to have you with us. Welcome to part two of Jack London's thriller, The Mexican, a true story based upon the exploits of Joe Rivers, a quiet man who lost his parents in the Mexican Revolution when they were murdered by the corrupt government. As we join part two, the terms of the upcoming fight between the quiet challenger Rivera and the loud, boisterous pro and ten-to-one favorite Danny are being negotiated, and Rivera wants a winner-take-all contract. His opponent finally agrees. If he, Rivera, will agree to a 10 a.m. weigh-in, which was a huge advantage for the larger and more muscular Danny, as he would be entering the ring that night well hydrated and in the fullness of his strength. And now, part two of The Mexican by Jack London. You think for a second you can lick me? Danny blurted in. Rivera nodded. Oh, come, listen to reason, Kelly pleaded. Think of the advertising. I want the money, was Rivera's answer. You couldn't win for me in a thousand years, Danny assured him. Then what are you holding out for, Rivera countered. If the money's that easy, why don't you go after it? I will so help me, Danny cried with abrupt conviction. I'll beat you to death in the ring, my boy. You monkeying with me this way? Make out the articles, Kelly. Winner take all. Play it up in the sporting columns. Tell him it's a grudge fight. I'll show this fresh kid a few. Kelly's secretary had begun to write when Danny interrupted. Hold on. He turned to Rivera. Waits. Ringside, Rivera said. Not on your life, fresh kid. If winner takes all, we weigh in at 10 a.m. And winner takes all? Rivera queried. Danny nodded. That settled it. He would enter the ring in his full ripeness of strength. Weigh in at ten, Rivera said. The secretary's pen went on scratching. That means five pounds, Roberts complained to Rivera. You've given too much away. You've thrown the fight right there. Danny will lick you sure. He'll be strong as a bull. You're a fool. You ain't got the chance of a dewdrop in hell. Rivera's answer? was a calculated look of hatred. Even this gringo he despised, and him he had found the whitest gringo of them all. Barely noticed was Rivera as he entered the ring. Only a very slight and very scattering ripple of half-hearted hand-clapping greeted him. The house did not believe in him. He was the lamb led to slaughter at the hands of the great Danny. Besides, the house was disappointed. It had expected a rushing battle between Danny Ward and Billy Carthy, and here it must put up with this poor little Tyro. Still further, it had manifested its disapproval of the change by betting two and even three to one on Danny. And where a betting audience's money is, there is its heart. The Mexican boy sat down in his corner and waited. The slow minutes lagged by. Danny was making him wait. It was an old trick, but ever it worked on the young new fighters. They grew frightened, sitting thus and facing their own apprehensions and a callous tobacco-smoking audience. But for once, the trick failed. Roberts was right. Rivera had no goat. He, who was more delicately coordinated, more finely nerved and strung than any of them, had no nerves of this sort. The atmosphere of foredoomed defeat in his own corner had no effect on him. His handlers were gringos and strangers. Also, they were scrubs, 
the dirty driftage of the fight game, without honor, without efficiency. And they were chilled as well, with certitude that theirs was the losing corner. Now, you gotta be careful, Spider Haggerty warned him. Spider was his chief second. Make it last as long as you can. Them's my instructions from Kelly. If you don't, the papers call it another bum fight and give the game a bigger black guy in Los Angeles. All of which was not encouraging, but Rivera took no notice. He despised prize fighting. It was the hated game of the hated gringo. He had taken up with it as a chopping block for others in the training quarters, solely because he was starving. The fact that he was marvelously made for it had meant nothing. He hated it. Not until he'd come into the junta and he fought for money. And he had found the money easy. Not first among the sons of men had he been to find himself successful at a despised vocation. He did not analyze. He merely knew that he must win this fight. There could be no other outcome. For behind him, nerving him to this belief, were profounder forces than any the crowded house dreamed. Danny Ward fought for money and for the easy ways of life that money would bring. But the things Rivera fought for burned in his brain, blazing in terrible visions that, with eyes wide open, sitting lonely in the corner of the ring and waiting for his tricky antagonist, he saw as clearly as he had lived them. He saw the white-walled, white-power factories of Rio Blanco. He saw the 6,000 workers, starved and wan, and the little children, seven and eight years of age, who toiled long shifts for 10 cents a day. He saw the perambulating corpses, the ghastly death's heads of men who labored in the dye rooms. He remembered that he had heard his father called the dye rooms the suicide holes, where a year was death. He saw the little patio and his mother cooking and moiling at crude housekeeping and finding time to caress and love him. And his father, he saw large, big-mustached and deep-chested, kindly above all men, who loved all men and whose heart was so large that there was love to overflowing still left for the mother and the little muchacho playing in the corner of the patio. In those days, his name had not been Felipe Rivera. It had been Fernandez, his father's and mother's name. Him they had called Juan. Later, he had changed it himself, for he had found the name of Fernandez hated by prefects of police, jefes politicos, and rurales. Big, hardy, Joaquin Fernandez. A large place he occupied in Rivera's visions. He had not understood at the time, but looking back, he could understand. He could see him setting type in the little printery, or scribbling endless hasty, nervous lines on a much cluttered desk. And he could see the strange evenings when workmen, coming secretly in the dark like men who did ill deeds, met with his father and talked long hours where he, the muchacho, lay not always asleep in the corner. As from a remote distance, he could hear Spider Haggerty saying to him, No laying down at the start. Them's instructions. Take a beating and earn your dough. Ten minutes had passed, and he still sat in his corner. There were no signs of Danny, who was evidently playing the trick to the limit. But more visions burned before the eye of Rivera's memory. The strike, or rather, the lockout, because the workers of Rio Blanco had helped their striking brothers of Puebla. The hunger, 
the expeditions in the hills for berries, the roots and herbs that all ate and that twisted and pained the stomachs of all of them. And then the nightmare, the waste of the ground before the company's store, the thousands of starving workers, General Rosalio Martinez and the soldiers of Porfirio Diaz, and the death-spitting rifles that seemed to never cease spitting, while the workers' wrongs were washed and washed again in their own blood. And that night, he saw the flat cars piled high with the bodies of the slain, consigned to Veracruz, food for the sharks of the bay. Again he crawled over the grisly heaps, seeking and finding, stripped and mangled, his father and his mother. His mother he especially remembered, only her face projecting, her body burdened by the weight of dozens of bodies. Again the rifles of the soldiers of Porfirio Diaz cracked, and again he dropped to the ground and slunk away like some hunted coyote of the hills. To his ears came a great roar, as of the sea, and he saw Danny Ward leading his retinue of trainers in seconds coming down the center aisle. The house was in wild uproar for the popular hero who was bound to win. Everybody proclaimed him. Everybody was for him. Even Rivera's own seconds warmed to something akin to cheerfulness when Danny ducked jauntily through the ropes and entered the ring. His face continually spread to an unending succession of smiles. And when Danny smiled, he smiled in every feature, even to the laughter wrinkles of the corner of his eyes and into the depths of the eyes themselves. Never was there so genial a fighter. His face was a running advertisement of good feeling, of good fellowship. He knew everybody. He joked and laughed and greeted his friends through the ropes. Those further away, unable to suppress their admiration, cried loudly, Oh you, Danny! It was a joyous ovation of affection that lasted a full five minutes. Rivera was disregarded. For all that the audience noticed, he didn't exist. Spider Lagerty's bloated face bent down close to his. No getting scared, the spider warned. And remember instructions. You gotta last. No laying down. If you lay down, we got instructions to beat you up in the dressing rooms. You sabi? You just gotta fight. The house began to applaud. Danny was crossing the ring to him. Danny bent over, caught Rivera's right hand in both his own, and shook it with impulsive hardiness. Danny's smile-wreathed face was close to his. The audience yelled its appreciation of Danny's display of sporting spirit. He was greeting his opponent with the fondness of a brother. Danny's lips moved, and the audience, interpreting the unheard words to be those of a kindly-natured sport, yelled again. Only Rivera heard the low words. You little Mexican rat! hissed from between Danny's gaily smiling lips. I'll fetch the yellow out of you. Rivera made no move. He did not rise. He merely hated with his eyes. Get up, you dog! Some man yelled through the ropes from behind. The crowd began to hiss and boo him for his unsportsmanlike conduct, but he sat unmoved. Another great outburst of applause was Danny's as he walked back across the ring. When Danny stripped, there was oohs and ahs of delight. His body was perfect, alive with easy suppleness and health and strength. The skin was white as a woman's, 
and as smooth. All grace and resilience and power resided therein. He had proved it in scores of battles. His photographs were in all the physical culture magazines. A groan went up as Spider Haggerty peeled Rivera's sweater over his head. His body seemed leaner because of the swarthiness of the skin. He had muscles, but they made no display like his opponents. What the audience neglected to see was the deep chest, nor could it guess the toughness of the fiber of the flesh, the instantaneous of the cell explosions of the muscles, the fineness of the nerves that wired every part of him into a splendid fighting mechanism. All the audience saw was a brown-skinned boy of 18 with what seemed the body of a boy. With Danny, it was different. Danny was a man of 24, and his body was a man's body. The contrast was still more striking as they stood together in the center of the ring, receiving the referee's last instructions. Rivera noticed Robert sitting directly behind the newspaper men. He was drunker than usual, and his speech was correspondingly slower. Take it easy, Rivera, Roberts drawled. He can't kill you, remember that. He'll rush you at the go-off, but don't get rattled. You just install and clinch. He can't hurt cover-up much. Just make believe to yourself that he's chopping out on you at the training quarters. Rivera made no sign that he had heard. Sullen little devil, Roberts muttered to the man next to him, but Rivera forgot to look his usual hatred. A vision of countless rifles blinded his eyes. Every face in the audience, far as he could see, to the high-dollar seats, was transformed into a rifle. And he saw the long Mexican border arid and sun-washed and aching. And along it, he saw the ragged bands that delayed only for the guns. Back in his corner, he waited, standing up. His seconds had crawled out through the ropes, taking the canvas stool with them. Diagonally across the squared ring, Danny faced him. The gong struck and the battle was on. The audience howled its delight. Never had it seen a battle open more convincingly. The papers were right. It was a grudge fight. Three quarters of the distance Danny covered in the rush to get together. His intention to eat up the Mexican lad plainly advertised. He assailed with not one blow, not two, nor a dozen. He was a gyroscope of blows, a whirlwind of destruction. Rivera was nowhere. He was overwhelmed buried beneath avalanches of punches delivered from every angle and position by a past master in the art. He was overborne, swept back against the ropes, separated by the referee, and swept back against the ropes again. It was not a fight. It was a slaughter, a massacre. Any audience, save a prize-fighting one, would have exhausted its emotions in that first minute. Danny was certainly showing what he could do, a splendid exhibition. Such was the certainty of the audience, as well as its excitement and favoritism, that it failed to take notice that the Mexican still stayed on his feet. The crowd forgot Rivera. They rarely saw him. So closely was he enveloped in Danny's man-eating attack. A minute of this went by, then two minutes. Then, in a separation, they caught a clear glimpse of the Mexican. His lip was cut. His nose was bleeding. As he turned and staggered into a clinch, the welts of oozing blood from his contact with the ropes showed in red bars across his back. But what the audience did not notice was that his chest was not heaving and that his eyes were coldly burning as ever. 
Too many aspiring champions in the cruel welter of the training camps had practiced this man-eating attack on him, an attack he had learned to live through for a compensation of from half a dollar a go up to $15 a week. A hard school, and he was schooled hard. Then happened the amazing thing. The whirling, blurring mix-up ceased suddenly. Rivera stood alone. Danny, the redoubtable Danny, lay on his back. His body quivered as consciousness strove to return to it. He had not staggered and sunk down, nor had he gone over in a long, slumping fall. The right hook of Rivera had dropped him in midair with the abruptness of death. The referee shoved Rivera back with one hand and stood over the fallen gladiator, counting the seconds. It is the custom of prize-fighting audiences to cheer a clean knockdown blow. But this audience did not cheer. The thing had been too unexpected. It watched the toll of the seconds in tense silence, and through this silence, the voice of Roberts rose exultantly. I told you he was a two-handed fighter. By the fifth second, Danny was rolling over on his face, and when seven was counted, he rested on one knee, ready to rise after the count of nine and before the count of ten. If his knee still touched the floor at ten, he was considered down and also out. The instant his knee left the floor, he was considered up, and in that instant, it was Rivera's right to try and put him down again. Rivera took no chances. The moment that knee left the floor, he would strike again. He circled around, but the referee circled in between, and Rivera knew that the seconds he counted were very slow. All gringos were against him, even the referee. At nine, the referee gave Rivera a sharp thrust back. That was unfair. As it enabled Danny to rise, the smile back on his lips. Doubled partly over, with arms wrapped about face and abdomen, he cleverly stumbled into a clinch. By all the rules of the game, the referee should have broken it. But he didn't, and Danny clung on like a surf-battered barnacle and moment by moment recuperated. The last minute of the round was going fast. If he could live to the end, he would have a full minute in his corner to revive. And live to the end he did, smiling through all the desperateness and extremity. That smile won't come off, somebody yelled, and the audience laughed loudly in its relief. The kick that greaser's got is something got awful. Danny gasped in his corner to his advisor while his handlers worked frantically over him. The second and third rounds were tame. Danny, a tricky and consummate ring general, stalled and blocked and held on, devoting himself to recovering from that dazing first round blow. In the fourth round, he was himself again. Jarred and shaken, nevertheless, his good condition had enabled him to regain his vigor. But he tried no man-eating tactics. The Mexican had proved a tartar, Instead, he brought to bear his best fighting powers. In tricks and skill and experience, he was the master, and though he could land nothing vital, he proceeded scientifically to chop and wear down his opponent. He landed three blows to Rivera's one, but they were punishing blows only, and not deadly. It was the sum of many of them that constituted deadliness. He was respectful of this two-handed dub with the amazing short-arm kicks in both of his fists. In defense, Rivera developed a disconcerting straight left. Again and again, attack after attack, he straight left it away from him with accumulated damage to Danny's mouth and nose. 
But Danny was protean. That's why he was the coming champion. He could change from style to style of fighting at will. He now devoted himself to infighting. In this, he was particularly wicked, and it enabled him to avoid the other's straight left. Here he set the house wild repeatedly, capping it with a marvelous lock break and lift of an inside uppercut that raised the Mexican in the air and dropped him to the mat. Rivera rested on one knee, making the most of the count, and in the soul of him, he knew the referee was counting short seconds on him. Again in the seventh, Danny achieved the diabolical inside uppercut. He succeeded only in staggering Rivera, but in the ensuing moment of defenseless helplessness, he smashed him with another blow through the ropes. Rivera's body bounced on the heads of the newspapermen below, and they boosted him back to the edge of the platform outside the ropes. Here he rested on one knee, while the referee raced off the seconds. Inside the ropes, through which he must duck to enter the ring, Danny waited for him. Nor did the referee intervene or thrust Danny back as he had Rivera earlier. The house was beside itself with delight. Kill him, Danny, kill him, was the cry. Scores of voices took it up until it was like a war chant of wolves. Danny did his best, but Rivera, at the count of eight instead of nine, came unexpectedly through the ropes and safely into a clinch. Now the referee worked, tearing him away so that he could be hit, giving Danny every advantage that an unfair referee can give. But Rivera lived, and the days cleared from his brain. It was all of a piece. They were the hated gringos, and they were all unfair. And in the worst of it, visions continued to flash and sparkle in his brain. Long lines of railroad track that shimmered across the desert. Rurales and American constables. Prisons and calabooses. Tramps and water tanks. All the squalid, painful panorama of his odyssey after Rio Blanca and the strike. And, resplendent and glorious, he saw the great red revolution sweeping across his land. The guns were there before him. Every hated face was a gun. It was for the guns he fought. He was the gun. He was the revolution. He fought for all of Mexico. The audience began to grow incensed with Rivera. Why didn't he take the licking that was appointed him? Of course, he was going to be licked, but why should he be so obstinate about it? Very few were interested in him, and they were the certain, definite percentage of the gambling crowd that plays long shots. Believing Danny to be the winner, nevertheless, they had put their money on the Mexican at 4-10 to 10 and 1-3. to 3. More than a trifle was up on the point of how many rounds Rivera could last. Wild money had appeared at the ringside, proclaiming that he could not last seven rounds, or even six. The winners of this, now that their cash risk was happily settled, had joined in cheering on the favorite. But Rivera refused to be licked. Through the eighth round, his opponents strove vainly to repeat the uppercut. In the ninth, Rivera stunned the house again. In the midst of a clinch, he broke the lock with a quick, lithe movement, and in the narrow space between their bodies, his right lifted from the waist. Danny went to the floor and took the safety of the count. The crowd was appalled. He was being bested at his own game. His famous right uppercut had been worked back on him. Rivera made no attempt to catch him as he arose at nine. The referee was openly blocking that play though he stood clear when the situation was reversed and it was Rivera who was trying to get up. Twice in the tenth, 
Rivera put through the right uppercut, lifted from waist to opponent's chin. Danny grew desperate. The smile never left his face, but he went back to his man-eating rushes. Whirlwind as he would, he could not damage Rivera, while Rivera, through the blur and the whirl, dropped him to the mat three times in succession. Danny did not recuperate so quickly now, and by the 11th round, he was in a serious way. But from then till the 14th, he put up the gamest exhibition of his career. He stalled and blocked, fought parsimoniously, and strove to gather strength. Also, he fought as foully as a successful fighter knows how, every trick and device he employed, butting in the clinches with the seeming of accident, pinioning Rivera's glove between arm and body, healing his glove on Rivera's mouth to clog his breathing. Often in the clinches, through his cut and smiling lips, he snarled insults unspeakable and vile in Rivera's ear. Everybody, from the referee to the house, was with Danny and was helping Danny, and they knew what he had in mind. Vested by this surprise box of an unknown, he was pinning all on a single punch. He offered himself for punishment, fished and fainted and drew for that one opening that would enable him to whip a blow through with all his strength and turn the tide. As another and greater fighter had done before him, he might do a right and left to solar plexus and across the jaw. He could do it, for he was noted for the strength of punch that remained in his arms as long as he could keep his feet. Rivera's seconds were not half caring for him in the intervals between rounds. Their towels made a showing, but drove little air into his panting lungs. Spider Haggerty talked advice to him, but Rivera knew it was the wrong advice. Everybody was against him. He was surrounded by treachery. In the 14th round, he put Danny down again and himself stood resting, hands dropped at side, while the referee counted. In the other corner, Rivera had been noting suspicious whisperings. He saw Michael Kelly make his way to Roberts and bend and whisper. Rivera's ears were a cat's, desert trained, and he caught snatches of what was said. He wanted to hear more, and when his opponent arose, he maneuvered the fight into a clinch over against the ropes. Got to. He could hear Michael while Roberts nodded. Danny's got the win. I stand to lose a mint. I've got a ton of money covered. My own. If he lasts the 15th, I'm bust. The boy will mind you. Put something across. And thereafter, Rivera saw no more visions. They were trying to job him. Once again, he dropped Danny and stood resting, his hands at his side. Robert stood up. That settled him, he said. Go to your corner. He spoke with authority, as he had often spoken to Rivera at the training quarters. But Rivera looked hatred at him and waited for Danny to rise. Back in his corner in the minute interval, Kelly, the promoter, came and talked to Rivera. Throw it, damn you, he rasped in a harsh, low voice. You gotta lay down, Rivera. Stick with me, and I'll make your future. I'll let you lick Danny next time. But here's where you lay down. Rivera showed with his eyes that he heard, but he made neither sign of assent nor dissent. Why don't you speak? Kelly demanded angrily. You lose anyway, Spider Haggerty supplemented. The referee will take it away from you. Listen to Kelly and lay down. Lay down, kid, Kelly pleaded, and I'll help you to the championship. Rivera did not answer. I will, so help me, kid. 
At the strike of the gong, Rivera sensed something impending. The house did not. Whatever it was, it was there inside the ring with him, and very close. Danny's earlier surety seemed returned to him. The confidence of his advance frightened Rivera. Some trick was about to be worked. Danny rushed, but Rivera refused the encounter. He sidestepped away into safety. What the other wanted was a clinch. It was in some way necessary to the trick. Rivera backed and circled away, yet he knew sooner or later the clinch and the trick would come. Desperately, he resolved to draw it. He made as if to effect the clinch with Danny's next rush. Instead, at the last instant, just as their bodies should have come together, Rivera darted nimbly back, and in the same instant, Danny's corner raised a cry of foul. Rivera had fooled them. The referee paused irresolutely. The decision that trembled on his lips was never uttered, for a shrill boy's voice from the calorie piped, Raw work! Danny cursed Rivera openly and forced him, while Rivera danced away. Also, Rivera made up his mind to strike no more blows at the body. In this, he threw away half his chance of winning. But he knew if he was to win, it was with the outfighting that remained to him. Given the least opportunity, they would lie a foul on him. Danny threw all caution to the winds. For two rounds, he tore after and into the boy, who dared not meet him at close quarters. Rivera was struck again and again. He took blows by the dozens to avoid the perilous clinch. During this supreme final rally of Danny's, the audience rose to his feet and went mad. It did not understand. All it could see was that its favorite was winning, after all. Why don't you fight? It demanded wrathfully of Rivera. You're yellow. Open up, you cur. Open up. Kill him, Danny. Kill him. You sure got him. Kill him. In all the house, bar none, Rivera was the only cold man. By temperament and blood, he was the hottest passion there but he had gone through such vastly greater heats that this collective passion of 10,000 throats, rising surge on surge, was to his brain no more than a velvet cool of a summer twilight. Into the 17th round, Danny carried his rally. Rivera, under a heavy blow, drooped and sagged. His hands dropped helplessly as he reeled backward. Danny thought it was his chance. The boy was at his mercy. Thus Rivera, feigning, caught him off his guard, lashing out a clean drive to the mouth. Danny went down. When he arose, Rivera felled him with a down chop of a right on neck and jaw. Three times he repeated this. It was impossible for any referee to call these blows foul. Oh, Bill, Bill! Kelly pleaded to the referee. I can't, the official lamented back. He won't give me a chance. Danny battered and heroic, still kept coming up. Kelly and the others near the ring began to cry out to the police to stop it, though Danny's corner refused to throw in the towel. Rivera saw the fat police captain starting awkwardly to climb through the ropes and was not sure what it meant. There were so many ways of cheating in this game of the gringos. Danny, on his feet, tottered groggily and helplessly before him. The referee and the captain were both reaching for Rivera when he struck the last blow. Now there was no need to stop the fight, for Danny did not rise. Give me a count, Rivera cried hoarsely to the referee. And when the count was finished, Danny's seconds gathered him up and carried him to his corner. Who wins? 
Rivera demanded. Reluctantly, the referee caught Rivera's gloved hand and held it aloft. There were no congratulations for Rivera. He walked to his corner unattended, where his seconds had not yet placed his stool. He leaned backward on the ropes and looked his hatred at them, swept it on and about him till the whole 10,000 gringos were included. His knees trembled under him, and he was sobbing from exhaustion. Before his eyes, the hated faces swayed back and forth in the giddiness of nausea. Then he remembered they were the guns. The guns were his. The revolution could go on. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Best of Jack London. We always appreciate reviews. Stay safe, and we'll be back next week.